Good Tuesday morning to everyone. Hopefully everyone got some nice restful sleep. So our morning session this morning is from a brother who I met through Heather Kendall, if you are familiar with her. She wrote a book called A Tale of Two Kingdoms, which I highly recommend. So it's the history of New Covenant theology and how that system of theology has historically kind of progressed and developed. And so it was through her that I met Brother Rene. So he is native to Canada. So as a result, with some of the travel restrictions, we are Zooming him in this morning. And so Rene has been involved with church planning efforts all throughout Canada. And he started Baptist Evangelical Church near Montreal, Quebec. And he currently serves with Evangeliste at the Project of Evangelization in Anjou, Quebec. And as I understand it, he's going to be speaking with Brother Jeff Volker this coming fall in Montreal as well. So, plenty of stuff to check out. And very, all my interactions with Rene have been very encouraging. He's a wonderful brother in Christ. And he is going to be teaching this morning from Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8 through Galatians 5.1. So, how are you, Brother Rene? Hi, Zach. I'm, I'm fine. And you? I'm doing well. I'm uh, doing who well. are you rooting for tonight, Montreal or Vegas? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go with your home team, so Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you live closer to us. <laughs> so, well, the, thank you. The floor is yours, sir. Well, thank you, Zach. And uh, we got the last half hour of Gary on Sunday night, and then Zach yesterday, and Jeff, and then Gary last night. Uh, please pray for the republication of this book, um, 380 pages, the uh, Introduction à la Théologie de la Nouvelle Alliance. So it's in French, and if, uh, if the Lord leaves, it'll be into Spanish. Nuevo Pacto. Uh, let's get right to it. Uh, it's really great to be with you. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, this section of Paul's letter to the Galatians 4.8 to 5.1 is a call to live and stand in freedom from the law. Live and stand in freedom from the law. So there are two great sections. The first is from verse 8 to 20, and it's a, an appeal from Paul to the Galatians to return to gospel freedom based on logic, friendship, and spiritual paternity. And then the second section, verses 21 to 51, is an appeal from Scripture to withstand and conquer enslavement to the law. So in the first section, we see Paul's appeal to the Galatians to return to the gospel freedom based on logic. And this plea from logic is in Galatians 4, 8 to 11. And I'm reading God's word in the NIV translation. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. God's word. Following naturally from the glory of Galatians having turned away from slavery to freedom in verses one to seven, Paul describes now the mistake of their returning back to slavery to the law in verses eight to 11. And this is going to be an appeal from logic. Look where you have come from was your progress in vain now that you are allowing the Judaizers to foist the Jewish calendar on you and Mosaic law to enslave you again? In verse 8, Paul describes the Galatians' status before they had come to the freedom of the gospel. They were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. The apostle further describes those masters in verse 9 as weak and miserable forces. The new Christians of Galatia had escaped bondage to superstition, and to the elemental principles of the pagan religions. Stoicheia are the elements or the rudiments of any intellectual or religious system. Whether Paul meant idols, not gods, the elements of nature, fire, air, earth, water, 
or maybe the heavenly bodies, all these were created. And Paul shows in Romans 1.25 how the doctrine of creation reveals that idolatry is the worship of the created thing rather than of the creator. In Galatians 4, 8, and 9, we note that the pagan slavery of the Galatians before their conversion is now traded for slavery to Moses' law, according to Paul. Their slavery to those who by nature are not gods and to the weak and miserable forces in verse 8 is described further in verse 10 as observing special days and months and seasons and years. These special days can refer to the Sabbath days or the feast and holy days, or the months can refer, for example, to the observance of the month of Abib, when God brought Israel out of Egypt by night. And the years can refer to the Jewish rite of Sabbath years or Jubilee years. Gundry writes, as to the enslavement, the monotheistic law rates no better than polytheistic rules and regulations. And Longenecker states, Paul lumps the pre-Christian religious experiences of both Jews and Gentiles under the same epithet, that of being ta stoikeia, or basic principles. For though qualitatively quite different, both have been superseded by the relationship of being in Christ. This equation by, by Paul uh, between the divinely ordained law, which he elsewhere describes as holy, just, and good, and those degraded heathen systems which he reproves in 1 Corinthians 10.20 as the fellowship with devils is a confirmation of NCT, which allows the Mosaic law to be good, but temporary, and has been set aside with the coming of Jesus Christ, and which allows that pagans, they themselves have the law of conscience, Romans 2.14 and 15, that operates in a similar fashion to Mosaic law. But this equation is a major dilemma for Reformed commentators. West, in his word studies in Galatians, quotes Lightfoot at length, concluding that the two things being put in the same category as slavery to law are the higher elements of heathen religions and the lower elements in the Mosaic law, that is, the ritualistic element. And therefore, by the tripartite division of the law, Classic Reformed and Baptist Reformed theology allow that parts of the law were to be abolished as time-bound exterior elements opposed to grace and promise, while conserving the Ten Commandments as the eternal expression of the will of God. Philip Reichen, in his 2005 commentary on Galatians, sees the relapse of the Galatians as pharisaical observance of Jewish holidays, feasts, and festivals. He rightly points out that any religion that is based on observing special days is primitive because it reduces a relationship to a ritual. But he would also divide the law into three parts, keeping only the moral part, that is the Ten Commandments, which is eternal, as he writes in his 2003 book on the Ten Commandments written in stone. He says, another implication of the relationship between our Lord and his law is that the law is perpetually binding, that it remains in force for all persons in all places and all times. One thinks of reading Westminster and even 1689. Now, NCT has done a good job of showing that tripartite division of the law is not tenable biblically. For Riken and Reformed theology, the moral law is not in view in Galatians 4.10, only ceremonial law. However, it is hard for Riken to circumvent the obvious obstacle to covenant theology at the beginning of the chapter, where Paul says in verse 3, So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Riken admits that Paul equates that with Mosaic law by saying, What makes this verse difficult to interpret is the phrase, the elementary principles of the world. It would seem that Paul... Excuse me... It would seem that Paul is talking about the law given to Moses, for he will use the phrase under the law in both the next two verses, four and five. Riken then dodges the implication that the law has been abolished by the coming of Christ by explaining that the law is like God's kindergarten. And, quote, he raised his people on the law to prepare them for the gospel. This is the typical CT argument 
that, quote, the law drives us to faith or the law leads us to Christ. And it was evident in Reichen's treatment of 324 where he says in one breath that the law was needy only until the coming of Christ. Then he affirms, without seeing the contradiction, the law cannot save, but it can lead us to the Savior. People need to know the God's law. If Paul was right about the purpose of the law, then people must hear its judgments in order to be saved. We need the law to lead us to Christ. For only when the law reveals our sin will we ever start to look for the free grace that God has for us in the gospel. And Spurgeon, whom we revere as our uh, prince of preachers and admire as a courageous Baptist uh, pastor, nevertheless is a consummate Reformed Baptist and comments about this paragraph. We observe the Christian Sabbath. But beyond that, to the true believer, there should be no special observance of days and months and years. All that is a return to the weak and beggarly elements from which Christ has delivered him. That bondage is all ended now. Again, Spurgeon seems oblivious to the glaring contradiction of observing a Christian Sabbath and at the same time expressing there should be no special observance of days. In verse 11, Paul fears for the Galatians' ultimate salvation. Their relapse calls into question their understanding of the gospel and threatens the success of the apostles' labors. Martin Luther takes the Galatians to task for wanting to add works to the grace of the gospel by using the imagery of one of Aesop's fables and compares the Galatians to the dog who runs along the stream with a piece of mouth, excuse me, with a piece of meat in his mouth and deceived by the reflection of the meat in the water opens his mouth to snap at it, and so loses both the meat and the reflection. Longenecker quotes Bruce, saying that likely Paul is referring to news which he has just received to the effect that the Galatians were actually adopting the Jewish calendar. While not as yet submitting to circumcision, Gentile Christians of Galatia seem to have begun to observe the weekly Jewish Sabbaths, the annual Jewish festivals, and the Jewish high holidays all as they evidently were led to believe by the Judaizers as a means of bringing their Christian faith to completion. Paul is of two minds on their status, for he has just said in verse 9 that they turned from paganism. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, what a beautiful phrase, known by God. What a blessed Calvinistic, Augustinian, Pauline divine truth. Foreknowledge, election, indeed unconditional election, precedes conversion. The soteriological Calvinism, distinct from ecclesiastic or covenantal Calvinism, is most thoroughly embraced by NCT. I have an Arminian NCT or friend, but that's very rare. And my stint at the Evangelical Faculty of Theology in France with Henri Blochy thoroughly convinced me of five-point Calvinism, and I translated tulip into cerise. And if we had time, I would say what those five, uh, six letters mean, but we don't. So let's go to Chrysostom, who sees in the fourth century, in this passage, a reference to being known by God as part of the argument against the works-oriented uh, works Judaizers. He writes, it was not by your own pains that you found out God, but while you continued in error, he drew you to himself. So Paul believes that the Galatians were known by God, but sees some evidence that maybe they had not understood fully the free and finished work of Christ. This is why he entreats his beloved Galatians with multiple types of arguments and will reaffirm the pure gospel in 614. May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And in this paragraph, therefore, his argument has been logical. You started out well. How is it you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Doug Moo concludes, the Galatians' commitment to Christ, along with Paul's ministry among them, will prove to be empty, without purpose, if the Galatians should succumb to the message of the agitators by submitting to the law. Paul now moves from logic to a plea from friendship in verses 12 to 16. And I read... I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God. 
as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and give them, given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? This second plea is explicit. I plead with you. The verb is actually, I beg you. It is a warm and heartfelt plea, for he says, brothers, indicating he still thinks they are in the faith and walking back some of the strong language he has reserved for their relapse. His whole paragraph is highly emotional, based on personal affection, not on logic or scriptural argument. Paul has changed gears. Wearsby characterizes this passage as turning from spanking to embracing, as Paul reminds the believers of their love for him and his love for them. No more hot reprimands, Paul has cooled down. He calls his children in the faith to remember the fond exchanges they've had. Leon Morris says that Paul passionately desires that they should return to their first love as Christians and not persist in this flirtation with erroneous notions. He wants them to reconsider what he taught them before their feelings for him were transferred to other teachers. Furthermore, this second plea includes the language of proximity and contact with the first imperative since 3.7, be like me, for I became like you. What does that mean? Alan Cole thinks that Paul may mean nothing more than be as frank and loving with me as I've been with you. Calvin seems to also downplay this plea and sees no reference to the law. The words be as I am refer to the affection of the mind as he endeavors to accommodate himself to them. So he wishes that they would do the like by him in return. But the best understanding of Paul's having become like the Galatians is that he had abandoned the law and they should as well. This is in Riken, Longenecker, Morris, MacArthur, and a host of others. NCT highlights that Paul has seen what the law was like in reality. It is a stimulus to sin, Romans 5, a domineering master, Romans 6, a ministry of death, 2 Corinthians 3, a temporary custodian of Israel. I like what Gary said last night, that it is until Christ. But if even if it meant to Christ, <laughs> the next verse says we are not under that law. Thank you, Gary Scott. Paul had thrown off his Jewish shackles, as, more, as Morris comments, and he was begging his Galatian disciples to be like him in throwing out the Judaizers. Even Chrysostom in the fourth century understands Paul's plea this way. He says, he meant, therefore gaze on me. I too was once in your state of mind, especially so. I had a burning zeal for the law, yet afterwards I feared not to abandon the law, to withdraw from that rule of life. This ye know full well how obstinately I clung hold of Judaism and how with yet greater force I let it go. We are reminded once more how the church fathers opened up their theology to new covenant theology and how that was followed up in the 16th century by the first generation of Swiss brethren, so-called Anabaptists by their enemies. And then the first generation of particular Baptists in the 17th century. And then its latest manifestation since the 1970s with John Zen's shot over the bow, is there a covenant of grace? Riken calls this plea, be like me for I became like you, Paul's mission statement, a longer version of which appears in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul wants to be like the Galatians in the sense that he opens the door for the gospel in Galatia and does nothing that would be a hindrance to the ethnic and cultural context of these new disciples. 
by imposing Jewish customs, dietary laws, calendar observance. In fact, since the Damascus Road meeting with Christ and his theological realignment in Arabia, Paul had already set aside the Mosaic law completely as an operating system. He was not under the law, but could, when the situation warranted it, submit to it in order to draw his fellow men. He was not under the law of Moses, but he was now in law to Christ and nomos Christu. He did not bring Mosaic law to Galatia, but he was under Christ's law. He preached Christ crucified and raised from the dead, and he modeled Christ. So Reichen cites the whole 1 Corinthians 9 passage and knows what Paul means, but he does not comment on what that means for the Reformed doctrine of the permanence of the law. So the Apostle Paul closes his argument by asking for a commitment that the Galatians be like him. That is, stop believing that the law is necessary to complete the Christian experience. Schreiner sees the irony in that. Paul, even though he is a Jew, exhorts the Gentiles here to live as he does so that they are not enslaved to the law. The reason Paul gives for the command to be like him is that he has become like the readers. In other words, Paul, so to speak, has become like the Gentiles, that is, free from the law. Hence, it makes no sense for them as Gentiles to live like Jews and to submit to the Old Testament scriptures uh, in the sense of the regime of the law. In verses 13 to 15, as we have said, Paul appeals to the heart of the Galatians. He says that his illness was the occasion for taking such good care of him and to receive the gospel. West speaks for a number of commentators who see Paul's illness as an affliction of the eyes. When they could have shown contempt or scorn, says West, because of the loathsome aspect of ophthalmia, which was prevalent in the lowlands of Pamphylia, they would have even given him their own eyes, so precious he and his gospel had become to them. It's best to conclude with Longenecker, who outlines the different possibilities, malaria, ophthalmia, epilepsy, linked to the thorn in the flesh, that Paul does not give us enough information to be precise as to which illness he refers. Paul appeared as an angel to them. What changed in their relationship? What was their blessing now and what was their blessing of him now? Their relationship had cooled because the Judaizers cast aspersions on Paul's theology and capacity in order that they might bring them the full gospel. Their friendship should not be hampered says Paul, but deepened by him telling him the real stuff, the truth about the Judaizers. Schreiner comments that Paul hopes that his strong words will bring them to their senses so that they will align themselves again with Paul. Having appealed to the Galatians to turn from the enslaving submission to Mosaic law of the Judaizers on the basis of logic, then friendship, Paul now extends a plea from spiritual paternity in verses 17 to 20. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am uh, with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. So in verses 17 to 18, Paul exposes the ruse of the Judaizers. They made slavery to the law seductive, using zeal and false claims of complete status with God, becoming children of Abraham through circumcision and law-keeping. Paul knew something about zeal for the wrong gods. He says in chapter 1, verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But Paul had met Christ, and we read in 123 what people said of him now. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That is what the Judaizers, Judaizers were doing, albeit in an underhanded way, by flattery, ruse, and innuendo. They intended to separate the Galatians from the pure gospel, from Paul, and from other Christians. They were not the spiritual fathers of the Galatians. They were interlopers, sheep-stealing Paul's pagan Christian converts to win them over as Jewish proselytes. And they were using Mosaic law intimidation to do that. 
Meanwhile, they were paying court to the Galatians, fawning and fussing over them. They even used, perhaps, the antinomian bugaboo on them, as some zealous Reformed brothers are wont to do to NCTers in our day. Paul distinguishes between good zeal, which is always right when applied to the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ, and parochial confessional zeal meant to alienate, monopolize, and subvert to a truncated or perverted gospel. Alan Cole understands verse 17 as lending support to a salvific role for the law. Paul says, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. But Cole writes, when Paul says that the Judaizers would exclude you or alienate you, he is probably thinking back to 3, 22 and 23, the law deliberately herded men together as sinners so they might find salvation. These Judaizers are bolting men outside lest they should enjoy salvation. There could be no greater contrast, says Cole, than between the Judaizers and the very law that they profess to teach. But in 3.23 and 24, Paul says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. These verses do not support a salvific role for the law, but rather a custodial role. Cole's interpretation about the role of the law is the same as Reichen's that we saw in his treatment of Galatians 3.24. So we see reformed commentators importing a meaning that Paul does not express. That's called eisegesis. In this case, Alan Cole, he goes to great lengths to import the covenant understanding here in 417 based on two, verses, two verbs that have the same root, but that do not have the same meaning in different contexts. The verb ekleio means to shut out, exclude, alienate. But Paul does not tell us what the Judaizers want to shut out. It was probably the fellowship with Paul. Probably not salvation. Gundry shows the plausible meaning of this verse and expands it thus. They, the distorters of the gospel, aren't courting you nobly. Instead, they want to close you off from the law, from the law-free gospel. And or me is representative in order that you should court them. In any case, the reference to 324 and to a salvific role for the law is just not in the text. It comes rather from Westminster or 1689, possibly. We come now to Paul's agonizing response in verses 19 and 20. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. We see in these words the amazing tenderness of Paul, notwithstanding their fickleness. How sweetly and lovingly Paul addresses those he formerly rebuked. He calls them my dear children. And in a spiritual sense, they were his children. As Paul says of the Corinthians, I have begotten you in the gospel. That prompts Paul to use two very startling pictures now, deliberately intended to jolt the Galatians into reevaluating their blossoming affair with the Judaizers. First, Paul extraordinarily pictures himself as he were their mother in birth pangs. Usually Paul sees himself as the spiritual father, and we see him speaking to them as a loving father in many different passages. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Thessalonians 2, Philemon 10. But here, he describes his role as their spiritual mother. He uses the imagery in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. We were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. But in this situation, Galatia, it's the actual birthing that Paul uh, describes. And he needs to endure birth pangs for a second time. And then secondly, in this short verse 19, the apostle reverses the word picture to the Galatians as bearing Christ. So now they have to bear Christ in their hearts. Carson comments, this is not some cool professional evangelist. He recognizes that sometimes in the preaching and teaching of the gospel, it's like a woman giving birth. It can be so painful. And now the child is here and then suddenly you discover maybe the child's not born at all. You have to start pushing again. You have a kind of perpetual childbirth because you're not sure whether the child is here or not. It's almost a bizarre metaphor, says Carson. 
but it shows how deeply Paul is in agony. The word again, palin, refers to the pains Paul suffered when he first saw the gospel brought to the Galatians and is now suffering all over again because the Galatians are regressing to a false gospel. Paul's travails are nothing compared, of course, to those of Jesus Christ on the cross, and which Paul in some way completes, as it were. Paul is grieved and writes a letter to admonish these converts so that they would not be stillborn. But Paul does not ask that Paul be formed in them. Rather, he desires that Christ be formed in them. That will ensure that they do not follow false teachers and apostatize. The believer is not only to profess faith in Christ, but he needs to become like Christ. And in verse 20, Paul shows that there would be greater effect if he were visiting them in person rather than simply writing. He could change his voice, be stern if needs be, or comforting if needs be. Paul is perplexed about them. So now he has concluded the emotional appeal and will address a scriptural appeal to these dear Galatians. We come to the second section, verses 21 to 5-1. Paul's appeal to withstand and to conquer enslavement to the law based on scripture. Since the Jewish zealots were so intent on the primacy of Mosaic, Mosaic law to the downgrading of the new revelation, the gospel, the Hadasha Berit, the new covenant, Paul will play ball by returning the serve with the proof in the scriptures that Christians are not under law. He takes the well-known story of Ishmael and Isaac, Genesis 16 to 21. He wants to reveal the neo-covenantal understanding of the Christian's relationship to the law of Moses. And we break down this section, this passage into two sections. Verses 21 to 25, the children of the law are enslaved. Verses 26 to 51, the children of promise are emancipated. In the first section, children of the law are enslaved. Verses 21 to 25, we encounter the issue of wanting to be under law. Contrasts between the two sons of Abraham, their status according to different mothers, the significance of their individual birth circumstances, the issue of allegory itself, the two mothers representing two covenants, the links between Hagar and Mount Sinai, and the correspondence of Hagar to the present Jerusalem and to slavery. So the children of law are enslaved, verses 21 to 25. We begin with verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware what the law says? We've already noted that the progression of Paul's argument from emotional to scriptural and the judo approach of using the law against those who deem themselves experts and even salesmen for the law. Paul's question, are you not aware what the law says, is directed to the Galatians who have succumbed to the Judaizing juggernaut and ultimately to the Judaizers themselves. We will explore the notion of allegory when it comes up in verse 24. But already in his introduction here in verse 21, oh, and I must say, Zach kindly gave me the hour. So I hope to finish by half past. Uh, we must note that Paul grounds his allegory in real history. And, and the theological conclusions he will draw are from the Old Testament. Paul goes to the law as written. He's going to anchor his arguments in the law itself, in what it says. The contrast between the two sons in verses 22 to 23, the setting up of a trajectory by the barrenness of the exilic period, that quote from Isaiah in verse 27, the mocking persecution of Ishmael in verse 29, and the scriptural conclusion in verse 30 from Genesis 21:10, that quote, all those things confirm that Paul does not allegorize in some ethereal sense. He is quoting from scripture and drawing the lessons. They are grounded in history. He does not do like Origen and Jerome, does not divorce theology from salvation history. And we will see that this last citation from Genesis 21.10 that Paul brings in in verse 30, it appears to be the pivot for the whole passage. The issue in this verse 21 is wanting to be under law. Paul talks to some in the Galatian congregations who wanted or desired to be under law as practiced by the Jews. These folks 
They appreciated rabbinic arguments in principle. Cole points out that in South Galatian theory, not an inconsiderable part of the church would have been Jewish or of proselyte background. And such arguments would have double interest for them. The fact that Genesis did not contain the commandments is not important as the first five books are considered to be law, as well as the Psalms and in a certain sense, the entire Old Testament. The event under consideration did actually contain a commandment, that of circumcision. The approach Paul uses here is an argumentum ad hominem. I hope I pronounced the Latin right, Zach. That is, Paul meets these legalists that want to be under law on their own ground, speaking specifically to them. However, Longenecker convincingly argues that Paul here addresses all the Galatians and he astutely remarks, the Galatians were not yet hyponomon under the law, but hyponomon thelontesainai, they want to be under the law. Reichen detects a note of sarcasm in Paul's question. Schreiner says it is rich with irony, and we understand that Paul is very exercised by the Galatians' squandering of their newfound freedom in Christ and their keeping of Jewish calendar traditions, even considering circumcision. In all these efforts to prove themselves good Christians, they were returning to slavery, to rules, to regulations, with which apparently some of them were comfortable. And for Paul, this is not just a small foible. Schreiner says the use of underlaw, huponomon, signals Paul's estimation of their desire for those who place themselves under law are also subjecting themselves to the power of sin and are living in the old era of redemptive history. Therefore, the Galatians should listen to what the law, that is scripture, says. For if they did so, they would understand that living under the law constitutes a fatal mistake. So now Paul has thrown down the gauntlet. He has left the domain of emotion and perplexity. He has changed his tone and is challenging the Judaizing argument on familiar ground as to form and content. He will prosecute the Galatian problem in a historical, typological, and covenantally sequential fashion by exposing what the law really says about Abraham's sons. And so we read in 4.22 and 23, or it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. But his son, by the free woman, was born as the result of a divine promise. The way Paul introduces his subject is interesting. He says, for it is written, God up die. But contrary to customary usage, Paul does not uh, use the quote of a particular passage. He resumes selected facts. Morris notes that Paul does not refer to passages that specifically mention circumcision or to any of the rules of conduct laid down, laid down in the law as would have done the Judaizers. Cole calls this a flank attack. Paul contrasts the two sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac, without naming them. He indicates their status according to the different mothers and outlines the significance of their individual birth circumstances. Ishmael is born of Abraham and Hagar, a slave woman, whereas Isaac is born of Abraham and Sarah, the wife of Abraham, a free woman. As to the dramatic details and background of the story, Wearsby is helpful in his chronology of Abraham's life, from his call and God's promise of many descendants at 75 years old, Sarah's impatience at being barren and her proposal of an expedient by getting Abraham her bondservant, Hagar, in marriage when he was 85, Hagar's pregnancy and attitude, which provokes Sarah, but Ishmael is born when Abraham is 86, then God visits Abraham when he's 99 to tell him the time has come and then he will have a son to be called Isaac by Sarah in years time. Finally, the son is born when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, well beyond childbearing years. The customary three years pass and the weaning of Isaac is the, is the occasion for a great feast. But Ishmael, now 17, mocks Isaac and Sarah entreats Abraham to put out Hagar and Ishmael, which God confirms. And Abraham does so reluctantly. He is 103 years old. From these historical facts, Paul draws two significant differences between the two sons and the two mothers. First, Ishmael is born into slavery. 
because his mother's status is a slave or a bondwoman. Whereas Isaac is born because he is free because Sarah is free. Secondly, Ishmael is born according to the flesh, whereas Isaac is born through promise. Now, both are born naturally, but Isaac's birth is beyond natural because Sarah was barren and decades past childbearing years. These two differences are significant. And the second one, the supernatural element to Isaac's birth is especially underscored in the New Testament. Hebrews 11, 11 says, by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. The accent falls on the promise. Ishmael was born by natural means, but Isaac's birth transcends nature and is accomplished by an extraordinary promise of God. And these two distinctions between the half-brothers will make all the difference as to the status and inheritance and will now be the basis of the allegory and the status of the Galatians. In verse 24, these things are being taken figuratively, says NIV. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Verse 24 starts by saying which things are an allegory or which things are symbolic. Literally, these things are said with another meaning. They are taken figuratively. We have this Shriner's comment. Probably the best solution is to see a combination of typology and allegory. Schreiner has difficulty in seeing how Hagar functions as a historical type of Sinai. He repeats, it is difficult to see how Hagar in any historical sense anticipates the covenant at Sinai, and hence Paul exploits the Hagar narrative allegorically. That particular question came up on the Stack Exchange website, and a Reformed scholar, Tim Gallant, answers with some valid points. I just take one of them. There is a geographical connection between Hagar and Sinai. Hagar came from Egypt, the other side of Sinai. When Sarah mistreated her, she fled to Shur, just north of Sinai. And later, following the permanent expulsion, she took Ishmael to the wilderness of Paran, next to Sinai. So basically, her life circles around Sinai. Moreover, the fact that Hagar is an, was an Egyptian aligns with how Paul is depicting the redemption of Israel from Torah as the eschatological form of how Yahweh redeemed Israel from Egypt. Christ has brought a new exodus from Egypt. So Paul is saying in verse 24 that these things are to be taken figuratively or symbolically with a meaning. The women represent two covenants. Hagar, as a slave girl in her association with Mount Sinai, symbolizes the covenant of law through Moses. God has woven foreshadowings, types, prefigurations, and illustrations of spiritual realities into the warp and woof of the Old Testament history. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is the meaning of Hagar. This is the spiritual lesson Paul draws from Hagar. When one thinks of covenants, Hagar is a picture of the Mosaic Covenant, since Sinai is the location where Moses received that law. The situation of Hagar as the bondwoman suggests to Paul the essential ministry of the law as a ministry of enslavement. Indeed, Paul states in Galatians 4.3 that those who live under the law are minors, nepioi, and are enslaved, dedulomenoi. Those who are under the law need to be redeemed. Conversely, those who are redeemed are no longer minors, but sons, adults. The guardian of the law is no longer necessary because the child has reached the maturity of the faith. Paul does not just mention Hagar. He says she bears children who are to be slaves. Hagar and her children are assigned to the enslavement of the law and works of the law and law keeping. We read Exodus and think of Israel's emancipation from Egypt. The trek to Sinai is seen as freedom. But Paul has clearly seen in Romans, Corinthians, and here in Galatians, that God never intended that his old covenant law would free or save his people. To the contrary, it condemned, enslaved, and compounded sin. The law kills instead of making alive, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. What of Sarah? 
Schreiner writes, strictly speaking, the second covenant remains unnamed. But given the discussion in 15 to 18, it's possible that the covenant with Abraham is in view. Other scholars argue that the reference here is to the new covenant in contrast with the old. Probably the new covenant is in view here, but the new covenant fulfills the covenant made with Abraham. So we should not exaggerate the difference between these two options. The citation of Isaiah 54.1 in Galatians 4.27 signals the eschatological fulfillment of the covenant enacted with Abraham. Verse 25, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present situation of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. To the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. In this verse, Paul reaffirms the allegorical or typological link between Hagar and Mount Sinai. But why does Paul add the geographical detail in Arabia? Calvin and Schreiner comment that those who are under Sinaitic law of Moses have not entered the promise of God because they're, not, they're in Arabia, not in, in Israel. Uh, Brian Collins quotes Ritterboss, who counters that this verse is saying, although Sinai is in Arabia, Hagar is nonetheless to be identified with the present Jerusalem. The first option is to be preferred, as the second does not add much to our understanding. Ellicott resumes Paul's argument this way. This Hagar, the Hagar of which I am speaking, stands for Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia, the country of Hagar. The scene of the Mosaic legislation was part of the domains of the Ishmaelites. That's where they lived. The children of Hagar, so that these two may very well be compared. Who does Paul aim at by the expression, the present city of Jerusalem? Schreiner says, older scholarship tended to understand the present Jerusalem as a reference to the non-Christian Jewish opponents. It is more likely, however, that the Judaizers are in view. Such an identification fits with Paul's major concern throughout the letter. Still, the older view is not without merit, for the problem with the Judaizers was that they had not broken with Judaism sufficiently. The Judaizers desired to impose the Old Testament law on Gentile converts, and clearly such theology accords with the standard Jewish view that Gentiles cannot be proselytes without being circumcised. Schreiner clarifies the identity of the Judaizers for us by introducing the idea that they were not just zealous Jews as Paul was before his conversion, Rather, they could even have been part of the Jerusalem church, maybe even posing as Christians. And does this become a distinct possibility when we look at Galatians 2, 3 to 5? Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Therefore, when we pose the question, who does Paul aim at by the expression, expression, the present city of Jerusalem, there are those three possibilities. All of Judaism, two, zealous Jews pursuing Paul's converts, or this new idea of legalistic Judaizing professors of Christ pursuing Paul's converts. Betts sees both Judaism and the Jewish Christian teachers as standing under Paul's indictment here. Martin identifies Jerusalem here as the church in Jerusalem, arguing that Paul proclaimed a different gospel from the one preached in Jerusalem. Douglas Moo begs to differ. He writes, a number of scholars have recently suggested that this identification may be too general and may miss the sharp point Paul is making in this paragraph. His exhortation to the Galatians in verse 30 to cast out the slave woman suggests that the people he has in mind are not Jews in general, but the Judaizing Christians, the agitators, who have infiltrated the Galatian churches and need to be thrown out. Mu argues that Paul is looking at two mothers, two sons, two covenants, the flesh-spirit comparison. Even his quote of Isaiah 54.1 presumes a more fundamental old new covenant analysis. Therefore, he's more concerned with the basic opposition of two readings of salvation history, one focusing on the law as the continuing qualification for the people of God, and the other focusing on the law-free gospel. And therefore, the best answer is to understand Paul as aiming at Jewish zealots operating in the same fashion as Paul had before his conversion. 
the present Jerusalem along with her children, that is Judaism generally, and these Judaizing zealots particularly are enslaved. It is not likely that they would have been Jewish Christians. We must ask briefly, as we close this part of the allegory, then move on to Paul's last section about the emancipation of the children of promise. How is it that reformed commentators seem to go along with this scathing indictment of the Mosaic law? We researched Morris, Cole, Stott, Calvin, Gill, Spurgeon, and found near perfect agreement about Paul's treatment of the Mosaic law being part of an enslaving covenant. But one has to read on, read further. When the basic argument has been established, then one sees the spirit of Westminster return and the commentator, uh, Philip Riken, lands on all the bases throughout the Paul allegory, as if CT and NCT were of one mind about the law. And a few pages later, beyond the commentary on Galatians 4, 21 to 31, we read, Christ has freed us from the law, which is one of Paul's primary concerns throughout Galatians. Christ has not set us free from the moral law, which is God's eternal will for his people. Christ has not set us free from the moral law. Page 195 of his uh, commentary on Galatians. So it's clear that all through this passage, the CT reading of Galatians 4 has kept the Ten Commandments in a waterproof compartment, which was not vulnerable to Paul's searing censure on Mosaic law. We recognize the reformed doctrines of one covenant, two administrations the permanency of the moral law, the trans-historical moral law, or the covenant of grace, and the tripartite division of the law and the old covenant. So let's go to 426 to 51 as we try, try to close down quickly. In this last section, Paul completes the allegory by filling in the other side of the contrast. However, he does not mention Sarah and does not name the second covenant. He has just equated Hagar and the Mosaic Covenant with the earthly Jerusalem, and he immediately contrasts with the Jerusalem above. In verse 26, Paul says she is free, and in verse 27, she is fertile. In verse 26, but the Jeru Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. She is free in contrast to Hagar, Sinai, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, the present Jerusalem. But how is she free in and of herself? Well, first of all, she's free because she is linked to Sarah, who was the free woman. The son born to her is not only a miraculous son of promise, he is a free child. Those who are born of the promise, that is, who trust in the descendant of Abraham, the unique seed, are free. They are born or reborn free. My name is René, that means reborn in French. Secondly, she is free because that city, the heavenly Jerusalem, is the ideal city of God and has a rich Old Testament and New Testament prophetic and eschatological background. It's the epitome of the free and redeemed people of God in heaven. Glorious things are said of you, city of God, says the psalmist. Isaiah 65, I will create Jerusalem to be a delight. Ezekiel 40, in visions of God, I saw some buildings that looked like a city. Hebrews 12, 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Revelations 3, 12, 12, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on them my new name. So she's described as a bride in chapter 21 and 10. The, the holy city, uh, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the land. And he carried me away in the spiritual mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. This heavenly Jerusalem is not in slavery. It is perfect, ideal. It has been redeemed, it is free. And Paul says in Galatians 4.26, she is our mother. Isaiah 66, 7 to 11, the prophet describes that heavenly city as a nursing mother with many children. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad for her, all you who love her. This city above is the mother of, believing, of the believing Galatians. 
Their faith, if it can break out of the Judaizing shackles, is living proof of the spiritual people of God, the earthly members of the city not made by hands, and which is to come. Schreiner writes, the Jerusalem above, according to Paul, is the eschatological Jerusalem that has reached down into the present evil age. Even though the heavenly Jerusalem had not arrived in its fullness, the age to come had invaded the present evil age so that we have an example here of Paul's already, but not yet, eschatology. So Paul is telling the Galatians that just as they believed in Christ's death and resurrection, they have received Abraham's promise of sonship with God. Whether one is a Jew or a Gentile, one becomes a citizen of the heavenly city by faith, not by circumcision or dietary laws or observing calendar dates. Paul now quotes Isaiah, Isaiah 54.1, to buttress his argument. He doesn't quote it just as further scriptural proof of Galatians' relationship to Abraham and to God by faith. But I believe, as Paul is wont to do, he uses it to just break forth in great adoration and worship. He says, for it is written, be glad, barren woman, and you who never bore a child, shout for joy, cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. This Jerusalem from above is fertile. The point of correspondence between the Isaiah 54.3 quote and the Abrahamic situation and the Judaizers versus the Galatians context is the one word, barren. Sarah was barren. Jerusalem of this Isaiah's day was barren because her children had been carried away into the exile. And the present day Jerusalem was barren indeed if the Judaizers had to chase down false converts rather than make their own. Isaiah is giving hope to the captives in Babylon by likening Israel in exile to a wife abandoned by her husband. That is the Lord. The prophet tells them they're going to have many children. Isaiah writes, for you will spread to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Now Paul begins to apply the allegory to his readers in verse 28. Now you brothers and sisters like Isaac, you are the children of promise. What a change in tone. In, six, in 160 he said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who calls you to live in the grace of Christ. And in 3.1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Paul is hoping that his arguments that he's brought along, emotional, scriptural, have been so persuasive that they will turn from the folly of being children of the flesh like Ishmael, as comments Luther, or of all fleshly Israel, who gloried that they were the physical children of Abraham. Paul has called them brothers nine times in this epistle. So he is bringing them in as brothers at the end of his argument here. And Schreiner comments the Judaizers would almost certainly have considered the Galatians to be Ishmaelites, not true children of the covenant if they refused to be circumcised. Paul applies the allegory in a counterintuitive way. And we follow bold, Paul's bold affirmation that by their most pressured excuse me, by their most precious faith in Christ. The Galatians Christians are a spiritual brother to Isaac, the true children of Isaac. And in verse 29, he says the corollary to that truth. If you are brothers of Isaac, you should be expecting what Isaac received from Ishmael. This is going to be his punchline. He's going to tell the Galatians what they must do to practically conquer the Judaizing error. He tells them that as spiritual brothers of Isaac, they should expect the same treatment, the mocking, the persecution, the lording it over uh, small Isaac, and probably, as uh, Sarah says to Abraham, he's trying to get the inheritance. You gotta put him out. And Abraham reluctantly agrees, especially when God tells him, yes, I'm behind this, put him out. So Paul is ready to wrap up his appeal from Scripture. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We must put out the Hagar and the Ishmael. Therefore, whether it is Ishmael lording it over and mocking and persecuting Isaac, whether it is the Sanhedrin forbidding Peter to speak in the name of Jesus, whether it is Peter hiding from the Jews 
that have come from James and dragging Barnabas along in his simulation, or whether it is the Judaizers enslaving the Galatians by submission to the law, or whether it is Swingley persecuting Hugmeyer on the rack so that he would recant believer's baptism, or whether it is translators too timid to translate Galatians 3.24 as until Christ came, or whether it is Baptist Reformed brothers calling John Reisinger antinomian, or my Reformed brothers taking me to task for not keeping the Christian Sabbath, we must resist winsomely, persuasively, scripturally, so that the people of the New Covenant theology live and stand for freedom from the law. At the same time, and my colleagues will bring this up in the rest of the epistle, living for the freedom in the law of Christ, in the law of the Spirit, to live in the Spirit and to become more like Christ and make his great salvation known to a lost world. Amen. Brother Rene, thank you for that message. So hopefully we'll be able to have you in person here next year. So as we, as we plan for next year's conference. So, By God's grace, thank you. God bless you, brother. So we're going to take a break. We will reconvene at 11 o'clock for Brother Doug Gooden. So. Yes, ma'am. Coffee and donuts for anyone who needs a snack or kind of a caffeine pick-me-up this morning. So. Yeah. Yeah.